Hey, it's Jeff Woods. We wanted to ask you for a quick favor. We'd like to get to know you better, which is why we put together a quick quiz that literally takes less than a minute to complete. This will help us learn more about you so we can better serve you this year through our content and our ads. If you'd take one minute to pause this episode and go to theonething.com slash podcast quiz. That's the one thing with the number one in the URL.com slash podcast quiz. It'd mean the world to us. Thanks and enjoy this episode. This is the One Thing Podcast where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name's Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. On the cover of The One Thing, it says the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I think we can agree that if we fast forward through life and we've achieved extraordinary results, we would really feel successful. Yet there's a reason why almost everything that we know about success is mostly wrong. That's the purpose of this episode today. We had a conversation with the author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. We featured him during our One Thing webinar series. Every month we host an author where we have a live conversation with them about their book. And it's a chance for you as a fan of The One Thing to be able to interact with them directly and ask questions. Last month, we featured the man you are going to meet today. He's the author of Barking up the wrong tree, which you can get on Amazon, or if you go to audible.com slash one thing, you can get your copy there. With that, let's get into the conversation with Eric Barker. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. All right, everyone, welcome to our webinar today on why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. The man you're going to meet today, Eric Barker, authored this book, and we're very excited to be here with you. Every month we do a webinar with an author whose book we believe is aligned with our book, The One Thing. Now, what's interesting about this is every single day, this didn't make it into the book, but we wake up with all these things that we could know but we can't know it all because life is too complex. And then we have all these things we could have, but we can't have it all because life offers too much. And then there's all these things that we could do, but we can't do it all because our time is limited. And what this means is that every single day, we have to wake up making choices. Most of us walk through life trying to know it all, try to have it all, and try to do it all. And what happens is we end up nibbling around the edges of what life has to offer. Out of curiosity, for those of you who are here right now, how many of you wake up trying to know it all, trying to have it all, trying to do it all? You just you wake up with massive ambition, you take massive action, and yet you fast forward to the end of the day, sometimes feeling like, I know I did a lot, yet did I even get anything done? Have you ever wondered that? If so, put yes in the questions box. Absolutely. <laughs> Look at the yeses come rolling in. The opportunity for all of us is to, instead of trying to go wide, to go deep to be selective about what we choose to acquire in terms of knowledge, what we choose to have, and what we choose to do. And that's really where, why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. And this is where Eric Barker really comes to the table. And so much of what he writes about in this book will be aligned with this idea. And you can get this on Amazon, or if you're an Audible fan, you can go up to audible.com slash one 
thing and you can get a copy of the book there. And we're just going to spend the rest of the time, the rest of the hour, having a great conversation with the author, Eric Barker. I want to let you guys know, we would love for you to submit your questions as we go throughout this, because we really want to make sure that you have the chance to ask the questions. Uh, to, to Eric directly. And we're, I know we're just going to have a great time. So Eric, I'm sending you the request for your webcam and I am unmuting you so I can see your... There he is, his face, hey. my face. We got faces. It's FaceTime, baby. <laughs> it's great to be here, man. Yeah, well, excited to have you. And you know, the, from the few conversations he and I have had, we've got a very similar, ridiculous personality. So I have a feeling this is going to be witty and fun. So... Where did this Very whole cool. idea come from? The, the idea of barking up the wrong tree. I mean, it was, I found a career crossroads myself where, you know, uh, we all, we all grew up with these maxims of success. Like, you know, nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who, you know, and you know, it's like, I, I had a very unconventional career. I was a screenwriter in Hollywood or the video game industry. And I saw that sometimes these things, sometimes they were true. Sometimes they weren't true. And, I just wondered if anybody had ever tested these. And for a number of years on my blog, I had been looking at the research to try and, you know, find counterintuitive insights and test a lot of the theories we all came up with. And for the book, I was like, all right, let's go down the rabbit hole. Let's test these theories of success. Let's see whether they're true, whether they're not, for who they're true, and and then see if there's actually, you know, a better a better kind of maxim for us to go by. Yeah. Well, one of the things I know you wrote in the bu- about in the book is um, every, per- every person uh, has their own definition of success. And to truly accomplish that, there's four key factors that one has to consider. Talk to us a little bit about those. Yeah. So it's really interesting because I think we, we tend to, you know, definitions of success get, get really tricky. And, you know, some people are more money focused. Some people are more well-rounded. Some people are more focused on kind of, you know, keeping that, that balance. And, uh, the, the really, the critical element, you know, I think for everybody, the big picture kind of meta definition is, you know, first and foremost, it's like knowing yourself, you know, knowing what's really critical to you, knowing what your signature strengths are. The, uh, the research, uh, said by Martin Seligman at the university of Pennsylvania, uh, shows that signature strengths, those things that you're uniquely good at. Uh, the more you do those, the happier you are, the more successful you are, and the more people like you. It's it's kind of like a win, 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 win. So really knowing yourself so that you know where your talent lies. And then second, aligning your context. Hold on, hold on, Eric. Let me, let me yeah. stop you right there because I want to go deeper there. Yeah. I'm curious, and this is where I want to make it interactive for the people who are on here. Sure. How many of you feel like you wake up and through your job, you just have to do everything? Everything that comes your way, you're expected to knock it out. You're expected to be in your email inbox. You're expected to attend meetings when you're requested to be there. And anything that comes your way, you're supposed to just get it done. If so, put yes in the questions box. And if you disagree, go ahead and let us know. I've gotten all yeses. So Eric, what do you say to those people? Every single person here feels that that's the expectation of them. What would the research suggest? The research would would suggest it's kind of like basically looking at your ta- looking at your tasks and asking where you can deliver the most value, you know, mm. because we all get lumped at a bunch at a bunch of stuff. But the one thing is, a lot of people don't clarify, you know, what is really the key thing. You know, like Cal Newport talks about, it's kind of like deep work versus shallow work, where yeah. you know, get staying on top of your email box, it's important. You can't ignore it. But nobody got ever got promoted because they responded to all their emails. You know, I mean, as opposed to coming up with that next big idea, coming up with that, you know, that next more efficient solution, which really moves the needle for the company, as opposed to, well, hey, I replied to everybody's email in five minutes. I mean, there are, we are going to get pulled. We are going to. So it's an issue of prioritizing because if something's going to fall, if something's going to fall through the cracks, what do you want that to be? Do you want that to be the big, huge presentation for the CEO? Or do you want that to be that email that fine, maybe was an hour later than it should have been? Hold on. What was that word you said? Prior, prior, uh, prior, prioritizing. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> That's my new word of the day. I'm going to write that one down. The, well, I mean, get to it whenever. It's not first thing. Don't, don't, you know, it doesn't matter. I, I'm actually, I'm the type of guy, I like to wake up and check email and attend meetings and just do and respond to everybody else's requests. And then at the end of the day, hopefully squeeze time to do my one thing. Oh, well, that's the, the, the key is really being reactive. 
you know, don't have a plan or any priorities. Just deal with things on other people's timetable as they come. This is this is a well-worn path to failure. But um, yeah. Did I did I promise all of you some witty banter today? Um, <laughs> we're just we're just getting warmed up. Uh, okay, so that was the first thing. What's the second? Yeah. Um, the the second thing is the, is the issue of you know is context. You know, I mean, if you are fantastic with numbers uh, and you're working in graphic design, you can be the most talented Excel the Excel jockey ever created that your context is not aligned with your skill set. You're not going to experience great success and probably not great fulfillment. And so it's really that issue of knowing, it's kind of like, where are my strengths? And also, I, I will say, another interesting point, uh, Gotham Akunda is a professor at Harvard Business School, also talks about something called intensifiers, which is basically qualities which on average are negative, but in the right context are positive. So in other words, uh, so if somebody tells you that you're argumentative, that's generally not a compliment, and it's probably really bad for your interpersonal relationships. However, mm -hmm. should you choose to go into the field of litigation, it right. might be a strength. Somebody might tell you you're stubborn, not a compliment. If you're an entrepreneur, stubbornness is pretty much essential. So again, even your negatives, if you know yourself well enough to say, these are my weaknesses, you can find a context where those might actually be positives. I'm curious about this because um, how many people who are watching this live, do you feel like you have a good understanding of who you are as a person and you feel like you can confidently assess if you have the right context, if it's aligned with your environment? I know prior to coming and working with Gary and Jay for me, I knew what my strengths were, I knew what my weaknesses were, but I found hard time identifying where the right fit was in terms of environment and profession, Eric. What do you have to say for that? I think what's really critical is instead of reading a job description or reading, you know, uh, like, you know, newspaper descriptions, is if you're looking at a new opportunity inside of a company, actually talking to people that work there and seeing internally what is really valued at that company. I know one guy who, um, you know, he was an operations guy. So he was all about logistics, get it there on time, keep the systems running. Yeah. And he was getting his MBA and got a internship that everybody was envious of. He got an internship at Apple and he was miserable because he's an operations guy and Apple's not an operations company. And Apple actually offered him a job at the end of the summer and he didn't take it. He ended up going to Amazon.com and he was very happy because Amazon.com, logistics, operations, getting things from point A to point B, that's critical to what Amazon does. So he felt like his signature strengths were being utilized. Mm. So even a great, a, a general great context like Apple computer isn't great if you know your signature strengths, you know, and you're saying, I'm, I'm not going to be properly utilized here. I'm not going to be, you know, kind of like critical path here. And you can say, hey, you know, at least for him, Amazon.com, logistics, operations. Man, this is the place for me. Cool. Cool. So that's the first two. Where do we go from there? Okay. Well, that's, that's kind of the issue of the success issue. Now in terms of work-life balance and like really getting, instead of just, you know, good career, good life, uh, the big mistake a lot of people make is they use what uh, Clayton Christensen called a collapsing metric. So basically it's like, am I doing good? It's like, you want like a score in a video game. You want no one number. Well, that one number usually ends up being money which is nice, but money doesn't protect your health, your relationships, your happiness. What they found when they did the research, uh, Nash and Stevenson at Harvard did research to find people who had achieved work-life balance and just a good life holistically, they scored by four metrics. And those four metrics were one, happiness, two, achievement, three, significance, and four, legacy. And what those mean is happiness is pretty obvious. Are you enjoying what you're doing? Achievement, you know, you're making money getting promoted. But then significance was, is what you're doing providing value to the people you love and the people who love you? So if you're not seeing your family, you know, your, your happiness at your job and making money is still not going to be enough. And then legacy, do you feel like in some small way you're making the world a better place? So when people achieve, had happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy, those were people who really felt that they were, they had their life, a, a full life. And basically it was an issue of people looking at their calendars, 
and saying, am I kind of making deposits in all four buckets every week or every month? Am I you know, pretty balanced on all four burners? And when people evaluated it through that, they were able to kind of say, you know what, I need a little bit more significance, you know, not less achievement, but I'm, I'm good in the achievement department. They were able to score themselves and make adjustments. Now, let, let me ask you about this, because I remember when I was having a conversation with Gary and Jay, who co-authored The One Thing, they were saying work-life balance is a lie. It just doesn't exist. It's all about counterbalancing. There's no such thing as true balance. You go all in on work, and then when work is over, it's time to be all in on personal and family. How do you find people going about... Well, I'll ask the question first for the people who are here. How many of you feel like you have achieved some level of balance or counterbalance between whether it's happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy? Yes or no in the questions box. Linda says yes. Nice. Donna or Jeannie says, yes, I got no, no, Scott, no, Deirdre, no, no, Connie, yes. So kind of split down the middle, slanted toward the no. So I'd say about 60, 40. What do you suggest for these people? I mean, what's really critical there is, like I said, is is scoring it in terms of hours, because there's no doubt. It's like in any one of those arenas, you don't want to, you know, you want to have that one thing attitude of being totally committed to that thing while you're doing that thing. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, if you look at it, if you break it out in terms of hours, then it's like you only have 24 hours in a day. You're not going to work 24 hours in a day. You're not going to sleep 24 hours in a day. You're going to need to switch back and forth between your priorities. Sometimes going to have to be for work. Sometimes going to have to be for family. So that kind of issue of if you realize, you know, hey, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Hey, I'm making a lot of money, not seeing my family. Then it's like, okay, that's not getting enough hours and starting to look at that or legacy, you know, am, do I feel like I'm doing something that's, that's really helping people? Or is there some way I could amp that up by taking a little bit of that achievement money and donating it to charity to help, you know, legacy and feel like I'm making the world a better place. So just looking at like hours, which again, we all only have 24 in a day. Uh, to say where where are those going and is that the right balance? Because the balance between the four is individual. Some people mm-hmm. are very career focused. Achievement's going to be more important. Other people aren't as big in their career. They want happiness or they want significance to be a bigger part. And it's it's tweaking. So in the same way you're saying counterbalancing, it is that issue of it's more like a boat tic tacking. It's not a straight line. You know, sometimes you have to go a little bit more to family. Sometimes you have to go a little bit more to career. Can I turn the tables on you? Sure. How has that looked like in your life? You know, where were you before you did the research on this, the breakdown between happiness, achievement, significance, legacy, and what shifts did you start to make? Oh, uh, believe me, you know, this, th- this book is definitely written as a collection of the research and the findings. It is not a personal memoir. Um, th- there, uh, there is no doubt, uh, you know, that way I don't feel like a hypocrite because I was writing the work-life balance chapter talking about this balance. And desperately trying to meet a deadline and sit there saying to myself, wow, I, I don't have these four. I, I need to. <laughs> so I was kind of learning as I was writing. Uh, I'm, I present myself as the, own, the, uh, the, uh, the perfect four case study. So I actually made a lot more changes in terms of specifically uh, setting hard times on, rather than saying, hey, I'm going to see my friends whenever it became no. I'm going to make a weekly time to hang out with my buddy, Nick. I'm going to take a weekly time to spend some time with my buddy, Jason and his friend and actually staying. These are going to be in the calendar because doing that all of a sudden it shifts the default where now this is going to happen unless you, you make it not as opposed to kind of sort of get around to it. So I definitely implemented some of these changes because the process of writing a book, uh, you know, can be uh, can uh, can definitely uh, push one to extremes. Well, I, I just I just heard two things. One, did you say that by putting something on your calendar, it's more likely to happen? Oh, I mean, absolutely. It's like once you're switching, once you're switching the default to like it, you know, kind of maybe to you're making a commitment, commit to yourself. You know, all of a sudden, when somebody says, "Hey, you know, when are you available?" Instead of saying, instead of having this nebulous time when I'm supposed to see friends or see family, if you can look and you can say, you know what, I blocked out 7 p.m. on Monday. You know what, uh, maybe we should do that at 7 p.m. on Tuesday. You know, having that default, you know, defaults are hugely powerful. You look at like, you know, Taylor's work on nudges and stuff like that. Having that default where it's like, no, that, that time is protected. That time is designated for something. And also 
having it involve other people, now you've got accountability because now you've got somebody else that you have to do. What do you mean you're canceling on me? That makes it a lot trickier. It's like it's like a gym buddy, except for your except for your your social life. And right. uh, you know, having those kind of built in there makes it a lot easier. And also, frankly, it, it makes it a lot simpler to make decisions because you can just be like, "Hey, that, that's what I do on Friday. I'm available Friday. Can't do this Friday. We'll do next Friday." So here's the question for the audience, and, and obviously I'm being kind of cheeky here. We talk a lot about time blocking and how important it is, how it really is the one thing. My question for the people who are on here live, do you feel like you are time blocking your most important activities? Yes or no in the questions box. And this is just some very gentle, loving accountability. <laughs> ah, look at that. Okay, so mostly yeses. I got some no's. I got some sometimes. So here's a coaching question for those of you who are on here live. What's the one thing you're not time blocking? That if you started time blocking immediately, would either help you be happier, feel like you're achieving more, feel like you have more significance, or feel like you're leaving a greater legacy? What would that one thing be that you're not time blocking that if you started time blocking would make any one of those four easier or unnecessary? Share that with us. Here we go. So we got Derek says lead gen. Tasha says friend, social time. Christina says exercise. Derek says morning ritual, social time with friends. Signif says Donna's because we're on a half word basis. Love you, Donna. <laughs> I do time blocking, but I don't always do it when it's on the calendar. Okay. Time to learn. Ah, good one, Becky. Lead gen, exercise. Very cool. So here's my question for, for those of you who submitted an answer. What's stopping you from doing it? What's stopping you? Go ahead and share that answer with us in the questions box. Becky says nothing. <laughs> Me. Myself. <laughs> Okay. Well, I, I appreciate the accountability. Find time to make the schedule. Find so interesting. Find time to make time. Okay. All right. You guys get the rabbit hole we're going down. You know, the thing I appreciate about what you just said, Eric, is um, even though you wrote this very eye catching book, <laughs> you self admittedly are not perfect, right? You can put it in here because that's what the research suggests. And then to be yeah. able to say, I am, what'd you say? I'm the, I'm the, Perfect case study of what not to do. <laughs> I, I, I'm sometimes the bad, the bad. I'm the bad case study. You know, I, it, I like how I, I opened the book because um, I was looking for the love note that you wrote to me, and then I saw that you wrote it to Jay instead, which um, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but, for my parents who kindly put up with an orchid, hopeful monster, unfiltered leader of a son. What the heck does that mean? You ask. Well, we better get started. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I want to shrink you and put you in my pocket and just carry you around. I, I yeah, that, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> my pants are a little tight lately. I thought my wife just did the laundry, but then I realized I've been eating cookies. So there you go. Yeah, it's the laundry. It's laundry. So what's one thing when you were doing all the research that really surprised you around success? I mean, one of the, the critical things I think that surprised me and surprised uh, a lot of the readers was uh, the fact that valedictorians, uh, you know, don't usually become the most successful people. Now, don't get me wrong. They do well. They do very well. They do, they do better than average. But uh, Karen Arnold did research at Boston College and saw that valedictorians, the people who every parent wants their child to be, uh, the people that we, we look to as, hey, they're number one. They're number one in school, but they're usually not number one in life. Uh, they're they're the people who end up supporting the system. You know, they're not the people who end up changing the system or running the system. You know, and then when we look to it, you see it's like Bill Gates dropout, Steve Jobs dropout, Larry Ellison dropout. You know, it's like we start to see those those things, and it's you know it can it can it can kind of surprise us, but it was it was pretty clear. That basically the people who become valedictorians, it's usually tied to the personality trait of conscientiousness. They're good at following rules. And school has very, very clear rules. You know what you have to do. There's no entrepreneur in high school. Uh, you know, you, high school, you're told do X, Y, and Z. And if you do X, Y, and Z, right. you get an A and you're great. Versus in life, you can create your own path. In life, you can find your own way. You can create a new way. The world changes. There aren't clear rules. And there's a lot more flexibility in there. So 
the conscientious valedictorians end up following the rules who are created by other people. Mm, yeah, Tasha put in here, my daughter was valedictorian and it hadn't helped at all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to hear this. <laughs> Tasha, I appreciate you. You know, you talk a lot about surrounding yourself with the right people. What does that mean? I mean, it, it can mean different things for different people. Again, uh, you know, on one hand, if you're uh, ambitious, driven achiever type, hey, surrounding yourself with other ambitious, driven achiever types can push you forward. You can share tips with one another. You can help each other out. Uh, on the other hand, if you're somebody who career is, is not first, it's important, then, you know, maybe you want to surround yourself with people. Relaxing. Or maybe you're a driven, career ambitious type. And in your personal life, you need a break. And you don't want to be thinking about that stuff. What's critical, though, is just to realize that we usually hear peer pressure and we think, oh, uh, negative things. Uh, and we think uh, children uh, or high school students. And the truth mm -hmm. is peer pressure affects us our entire life, you know, whether we realize it or not. Context, I mean, one of the biggest findings, Dan Ariely, uh, Professor Duke told me, he said one of the biggest meta findings in social psychology research over the past 50 years has just been the dramatic amount that our context affects us. And that includes people. You know, you will become more like the people you're, you're surrounded by. And that's for good and for bad. So mm -hmm. we have to be careful. We have to be choosy. What, what, did, what, did, ever, what did your mom always tell you? you know, don't hang out with those kids. You know, why, why can't you hang out with the kids getting A's? You know, is that kind of thing. And actually, it's true throughout our entire lives. And so picking, being picky about who you spend time with it's going to affect you. And the most insidious thing about it, if you pick wrong, is that you're not even going to realize it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, everybody who's been following the One Thing podcast from the beginning knows how that Jim Rohn quote, that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with has impacted my life. And uh, we, we can't preach it enough. So I, I love it. What's your opinion on failure? I mean, failure is one of those things where uh, I, I, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the, the chapters I looked at the research on Batman, uh, and yes, there is scientific research on Batman, which is one of the reasons I love science. Uh, but anyway, basically, they said you know everybody everybody thinks a lot about it's like oh my god, what would it take to become Batman? Well, this Rubber one seat. researcher, E. Paul's error. Uh, I mean, a billion dollars helps. Uh, but you know, one of the, the 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 things is people think about how do you become Batman, but the truth is the question a lot of people don't ask is how do you stay Batman? And the issue is if you're a, a boxer or a mixed martial artist and you have a record of 30 and one, that's awesome. You are amazing. If you're Batman, you're dead. Batman has to be perfect all the time. You know, he can't lose a fight ever. So they did the research and they said, basically, if we look at comparable athletes, so boxers, mixed martial artists, running backs in the NFL, how long could they be perfect? How long could they not fail? How long could they be number one and not suffer a career-ending injury? And the answer was three years. That's, that's the max. So basically, if you think you're going to be perfect, if you think you're going to experience no failure in any way, and you are awesome, you are three years, you can't be perfect. You know, you, you can't be. And we learn a lot from failure. So the truth is, the best answer is, uh, I looked at uh, some of the, the research and work done by Peter Sims, where it's about little bets, where the issue of trying things in a restricted way, you're only going to invest so much time, so much energy, so much money initially. You're going to take a little bet, give something a shot. And if you fail, it doesn't matter. You're not going to lose much, as opposed to jumping in with both feet, and then it doesn't work out, and now it's really hard. Trying mm. new things giving yourself new opportunities. If you fail, it's not going to hurt you, but it could open up that next career opportunity, that next great hobby, that next great relationship. So we can utilize failure in a very measured strategic fashion to actually improve our lives in many ways by using little bets. Yeah. And, and I want to remind the people who are on here live, I really want to make this interactive for you. So if at any point in time, if we've covered something where you have had a question, go ahead and share it with us in the questions box because we're filtering through them. And I want to be able to throw your questions, Derek, as well, because I'm not the only one who's going to try to throw witty things his way. So we'll go, we'll go down that pipe. Uh, Eric, when you look at down that idea that failure is important because that's where you learn, right? It's the idea of failing your way forward. What's been some of your biggest failures where you and what was the the thing that you discovered about yourself out of that? 
Uh, I was a screenwriter in Hollywood for about 10 years, and I had I had some good success. I wrote for Walt Disney Pictures or for 20th Century Fox, but I realized that I was I was very, very focused on the writing. And Hollywood is a town that's very, very focused on the networking. And so I was able to do well on the writing side, but I wasn't creating enough opportunities for myself because the networking side of things was not a strength for me. And frankly, that's not where I wanted to devote most of my energy. So in terms of that, know thyself, find the right context, you know, it wasn't perfect for me, but I still knew my strengths were, you know, writing. So in the end, you know, blogging, now the book, and that provided me with an opportunity to not have to focus as much on the the Hollywood whining and dining uh, schmoozing type type networking element which was not my strength not my interest I was able to keep the part that was one of my signature strengths uh, and and one of my intensifiers which would be extreme introversion uh, and be able to use those and find a better context to leverage those signature strengths and to to produce a way in which I could be you know successful, but also much, much happier. Let's dive in there because I'm sure there's, and when we asked earlier, there's plenty of people, they know what their strengths are and the context is off, right? They're not in the right environment where it's, where it's in alignment, it's in harmony. What questions did you ask yourself that helped you discover what doors you could open so that there was that alignment? I mean, I think first and foremost is to, to, to ask where things are lacking. So when you look at, for instance, those four metrics and you say, you know, I'm getting, you know, maybe you're getting paid a lot, but you're not happy or maybe you're happy and you're being very successful, but you don't see your family. You're not creating significance, uh, you know, or maybe you're, you're, you're happy. You're uh, getting paid a lot. You do get some time with your family, uh, but you, 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 uh, you work for an evil dictator and you're not, you're not providing legacy. You know, I mean, to ask yourself, where is it lacking? How could I, could I adjust that in, in my current company, but a different role with my current role in a different company? What would it take to, to really address the problem I have? And then past that, there might be, there might be a bigger issue because some people do end up going back to school, getting a degree, getting a certification, uh, or leveraging, you know, more skills like social skills or whatever in terms of business development, maybe they're doing sales, you know? So to ask yourself, it's kind of like, how can I leverage these things differently? And like we were talking about earlier, little bets to be able to say, hey, you know what? I don't know anything about this other arena. Let me take a class. Let me read a book. Let me call up a few people who I know who are in that field because it sounds like something might be interesting to me. Nice. Making that that next step, which a lot of people don't do. They just speculate, jump in with both feet. It doesn't work out. And now they have to extract themselves from a difficult situation, as opposed to just kind of dipping your toe in the water, testing it, and then in a measured way, increasing your investment to the point where you realize a very clear yes or no, is this for me, without, without risking too much. Yeah, well, it's, as you were saying that, I was having a conversation with myself about some of my past careers and what I was, what I was doing and going, all right, well, how happy was I? And some of them vary, some of them ain't not at all. How much was I really achieving? What type of significance was I having? What type of legacy was I leaving? And this has really been the first opportunity where I feel like I actually have all four and no wonder why I'm here. I was going to say, please don't have an existential crisis right now. You know, I won't, we're on camera, I won't. I, I only break down in tears on podcasts. Oh, okay. That's that's good. They, people can only hear you whimper. You don't want to see the tears. I am a I'm a hideous crier. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Just angry cry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tasha says that was, that was laughter. I promise. Uh, there you go. Um, Tasha says, do you look for little bets or do you let them find you? Oh, uh, I look for them. You know the the find you thing. You know, that, that, that'll happen. You know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, your, your things will, things will come your way. That's going to happen one way or the other. You need to seek them out because if you, because, you know, everybody has some amount of serendipity in their life, but if you're not actively seeking them, then, you know, again, it's completely determined by the world. It's completely determined by your context versus you saying, Hey, I'm going to give this a shot. 
that's something that works out really wonderfully because then instead of having something bouncing around in your head, wondering about it, you can get an answer. You can just say, no, I was not meant to be a yoga teacher. Uh, you know, you can, you can actually get some clarity. And not only that, you also, even if a little bet doesn't work out, you still usually learn something about yourself. You might, you might realize, Hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be a yoga teacher, uh, but I really like teaching. And then really you can like take the another, pants. the pants are great. Yeah, they're, they're, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I just like sweating. Uh, you know, I mean, if you, if you do learn something that next little bit, it's like card counting that little bit, the next little bit, you've got an edge now because you know, I want it to be in the teaching arena, but I don't know where. Okay. And you can start to get closer and closer with each iteration. Yeah. Well, I remember I had a conversation with Brendan Burchard about a year ago and he, he said something and I'm paraphrasing along the lines of when opportunity comes knocking, it's work that answers the door. So, you know, the, the, the people who are like sitting on their couch in lotus position being like, I'm just going to get lucky. It's just going to fall in my lap. Yes, you will get some things to fall in your lap. And if you want more things to fall in your lap, you got to be willing to work. Uh, lucky and lazy share a lot of letters in common, you know, when you think about it. I mean, when people, when people say, when people say like, you know, I, I just want it to happen. You know, it's like, that's, that's kind of like. You know, that's basically to me, it's like, I just want it to happen and I want someone else to do it. <laughs> that's nice. I love that. Uh, speaking of lucky and lazy, you have this idea of, uh, you talk about how stories and limits are the concept of, of grit and quit. What does that all mean? I mean, the, you know, we're hearing so much. Grit is really having its moment in the sun now. We're hearing so much about it. And you know, there are a few things that really do, uh, really do promote grit, but I take that chapter of the book and I actually cleave it in half because I think that talking about quit is just as important as talking about grit. And, you know, without, in fact, without quit, we can't have grit. And I think that's really something, you know, you touch on with the, with the one thing issue with that issue of focus, because everybody likes to say, don't be a quitter. And it's like, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Everybody's a quitter and you should be a quitter, not in everything. But, you know, if I didn't quit anything, I would still be playing with Transformers. I'd still be in T-ball. You know, I'd still be uh, watching cartoons. You know, we all quit things. It's an issue of strategic quitting. Are you quitting the right things in order to make it? We only have 24 hours in a day. If you just keep adding new things and never quit anything, you're not going to have any time left. So it's strategic quitting where much like the little bets type theory where you're saying, I'm going to try mm -hmm. something, this, what is not moving the needle on what's important to you? If you think about what are my signature strengths, what's the right context? What are the four things in terms of happiness, you know, achievements, significance, and legacy? What is all aligned with that? I want to give that more time. I've only got 24 hours in a day. I want to give that thing more time. Guess where that time's coming from? Something else. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the economic uh, principle of opportunity cost. You know, they're, they're time, you don't make time. You know, you reallocate it, but you don't make time. You prioritize things. So just that issue of we have to quit things. Now, that said, you know, grit, there's three big things that really do make us grittier, you know, that the research supports. And that is number one, optimistic banking. If, you know, it's, it's pretty intuitive. If you don't think, if you don't think you're, you're going to be able to do it, then you won't, you know, versus if you do, you'll continue. If, if I think I'm going to keep winning, I'll stay at the table in Vegas. You know, second thing is stories is, is we have a belief about ourselves. I am the kind of person who, and when you have that really innate belief about yourself, you do follow through because, you know, identity is a really strong issue. And the third is games is when something's fun, you know, what, what's the difference between, you know, like, you know, Tetris and doing your taxes, both of them are kind of, they're almost puzzle based. One is the most horrible, awful thing, which we hate doing. And the other is addictive. It's addictive. You know, it's like that game structure is really critical. So those are three things that really promote grit. But we, we need to be thinking about quitting, you know, in terms of little bets, in terms of opportunity cost to make time for what's important. So I heard positive thinking. I heard stories and I heard games. Right. So where's a place in your life where you didn't have those things and you ended up weaving those things in? 
I mean, one thing that was really valuable for me was just having this. Uh, there's an app I use called Streaks, which oh, yeah, uh, yeah. basically yeah. just okay. No, it's it's that kind of thing where it gamifies things. Where it's like, did you do it yesterday? Did you do this? You get the little calendar of how many days yeah. you did it in a row. You don't want to break the chain. You know, you make it a little game. Yeah, it's like that. You want to keep that thing going, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh my god, I've done it. I've done it. You get to get the number there. Like I did it 34 days in a row. I'm going to miss it and go back to zero. I'm not going back to zero. You know, I mean, that that changes. And what is it? It's nothing. It's a game mechanic. It's a metric. It's just putting a number to it. You don't want to lose your 34. I mean, you know, it's like when people people say, oh, games. Why is that? What, that doesn't. It's not a bit. Have you heard people talk about fantasy football? Have you heard people talk about frequent flyer miles? I'm not losing my platinum status. I mean, people are really, and that's all it is, is that score, that number, that ranking. Mm. And if you can create that for yourself, it's very motivating. You just gave me an idea. (laughs) Must play fantasy football. I actually, so I was addicted to fantasy football and (laughs) I had to quit fantasy football three years ago because I started looking at how many I was investing at least an hour a day, (laughs) listening to podcasts, looking at my roster to win like what, 500 bucks. And I looked at how many hours if I had reallocated those into building our business, what that would have looked like or into my family. It wasn't, it was, um, when you say yes to one thing, you actually say no to everything else. So that was, that was a powerful lesson for me. Were you ever told that if you worked hard in school, got a good job, and saved in your 401k, that somehow you'd retire and secure your slice of the American dream? I know I was. What's interesting is that when you look at the wealthy, that's not how they got there. That's why we're excited to introduce you to our friend Patrick Donahoe and his team at Paradigm Life. If you go to perpetualwealthstrategy.net, you can download a free report called The Entrepreneur's Hierarchy of Investment. Patrick and his team specialize in this strategy and have made this report available specifically for you as a listener of The One Thing Podcast. So go ahead and get your report today at perpetualwealthstrategy.net. As I'm looking at this, positive thinking, stories, and games, I remember when I was in my medical sales job and I found myself um, really unsatisfied and unhappy. I remember a mentor of mine challenging me. First and foremost, he asked me why I was hating on my stepping stone. And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, do you think that this is the end all be all in your career? And I said, no. He said, and do you think to get to that next level or the level after that, do you think that this would serve you? I said, absolutely. He said, great. So how can you appreciate this as a stepping stone, knowing it's not the final destination and it's absolutely required to get you to where you want to go? That was the positive thinking side of it. And then telling myself that story, he told me a story about he turned it around and I was like, oh, inspired. And it was like a rocky moment for me. I was like, oh, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And, And then turning it into a game, he challenged me. He said, what would you have to do with your time so that you could double your income working half the hours? Yeah. And asking me that type of a question completely transformed how I showed up my, my territory. I started making more and then I met Jay. Wow. And here, and here wow. Today. No, I mean, that's, that's the critical thing. One of the stories I tell in the book is uh, my friend, James Waters, who, you know, became an SEAL platoon commander and just going through, you know, that, that whole issue of, you know, optimism, you can't be pessimistic. You can be pessimistic during buds trying to get through, you know, Navy SEAL training. You know, that story he told himself about, you know, where, where it was, what he needed to do. You know, it, it, it wasn't a time to be questioning who you are. It's this is, like you said, that stepping stone. He's got to get through this vetting process, you know, and then it's like past that. It's like he did. He explicitly, without looking at the research, you know, he explicitly said to me, oh, he's like, I made it a game. He's like, I, I made it. Just get through today. Get through. I got through six days and I get through seven. It was just like making it a game was actually I interviewed. A, a army ranger, a Navy SEAL, and a special forces operator. And all three didn't know, didn't know the research, didn't know each other. And all three cited the issue of making it a game was how they got through their ridiculous training. Mm, that is so interesting. So here's, here's my question for the audience. And then I want you guys to start submitting questions so we can invest the last 15 minutes doing Q&A. Where's one area of your life that you're unhappy? you're unfulfilled and you find yourself 
going down this very dark, dangerous rabbit hole. And if you could turn it into a game, would make everything else easier or unnecessary. What's that one area for you? Go ahead and share that with us in the questions box. And then please start submitting some of those questions because I want to make sure that we ask Eric your questions. And yes, this will be, uh, we are recording this. This will go up on the onething.com slash webinar. So you can watch the whole thing. It's also going to be available as a podcast um, on the One Thing podcast. You're welcome, Joan. If, if you watch this on video, you can see the awesome edge lighting I'm getting from from the sun coming in the window now. I've got some but, coming in over there as well. It's, it's really, um, uh, these these golden tones yeah. are really working for me. Yeah, and I thought you were just glowing. So I mean, you know. well, that's, I mean, I'm pregnant. <laughs> you are my assistants even getting it up over there now. I'm, I'm uh, revealing that for the first time. For the first time here <laughs> on this, I'm really, yes, I'm pregnant. So the, the, for the one time you're revealing it is on the one thing. I love it. Um, Big things Becky happening says here. Where, Becky says where she is, it's dark and full of snow and no sun. So we should be lucky. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Eric, what's what's one question that we haven't asked you that we should ask you? I mean, I think something that's really interesting is the the networking section of the book because, you know, like I said, I'm very introverted. That's one of the reasons why, you know, Hollywood did not click well for me. And I think it's something that a lot of people are resistant, uh, resistant to or just don't think they're good at. And it is amazing. Like introverts and extroverts, both, if you look at the research, both have their kind of superpowers. But, you know, a, a network is something that benefits everybody. And you look at the research, it's amazing how how much it benefits to have those relationships in the right places. I, I even took it to extremes and I looked at the research on drug dealers. And yes, drug dealers with larger networks uh, are more successful uh, financially and less likely to be incarcerated. So net networks benefit everyone, legal or illegal. And what I also found is that there are some really simple, easy, not stressful, not slimy ways to improve your network. And first and foremost, uh, was rather than connecting, is reconnecting. There's a lot of people in your Facebook friends list, in your contact list on your smartphone, in your LinkedIn contacts, uh, who have are in a position to help you or who have friends or a position to help you who you just haven't talked to in a year, two years, three years. So rather than having to reach out, you know, and shake hands, give business cards to somebody you don't know, it's awkward. These are people you're already friends with. You already know each other. You just need to reconnect. A second thing, because a lot of people say, oh, I love to network and I'm, I'm, I'm extroverted, but I just don't have the time. Um, well, for those people, what's really critical is uh, Brian Uzi and Sharon Dunlap did research about super connectors. And, mm -hmm. and those are people where if you look in, the, if you look in your, 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 your smartphone, you're going to see that a disproportionate number of your friends were introduced to you by a small number of people. There are these people who are the hubs of the network. And if you only have a limited amount of time to network, those are the people you want to focus on because they have created a disproportionate amount of the network you do have. If you go to them, you say, hey, I need help here. That's where your time is best invested. That's my strength. I, okay. I realized that I was I was a super connector early on. And that's ultimately how I ended up in relationship with Jay, because after I interviewed him for my first podcast, The Mentee, I asked where he needed help. And he said, I want to get, we want to sell more books. So I got him, I introduced him to some of the top podcasters in the world and got him on the show. And I asked him, where do you need help? And he said, we need, we want to sell more books. We want more exposure. And I wrote an article on entrepreneur. Where do you need help? Mm -hmm. We're looking for a CEO. I know people let's talk. And when he described who they were looking for, he described me. Oh, wow. So there you go. it's, I will underscore whether your current Rolodex, your network is small or large, how can you be the type of person who every day wakes up trying to bring value to other people? What doors are actually open to you? You just don't know it because you're not coming from value. Yeah. That's That's, um, Jennifer says, when you're unsatisfied in an area in your life, how do you know whether you should grit it through or make a change? It's a good question, and there are there are studies on that. What's really interesting is looking at, you know, a process that works for it. Um, was it uh, at it was at NYU uh, the research on Whoop, which was which what I call wish wish uh, wish outcome obstacle uh, plan. So the issue was 
how do you go from, is this something I should be doing or not? And whoop is a great little exercise you could do for any goal you have where the first step is, so whoop, wish, obstacle, outcome, plan, wish is what do you want? What would make you, what do you think would make you happy? Then crystallize it. So the outcome, what was the actual outcome? So I like a better job. Okay. Crystallize it. I, I want to be a vice president of Google. Okay. That's, that's pretty clear. What's the obstacle? What is stopping you from, from doing that? It's like, well, I don't know anybody at Google. Okay, well, then what's the plan? All right, I'm going to go down my LinkedIn contact list. I'm going to call my friends. I'm going to see who knows somebody at HR at Google. Now, there's two things that's interesting about this. Number one, it helps you work through a plan to get to your goals. But there was the second interesting finding with this research, and that is that when people work through the little whoop exercise, afterwards, if they felt energized, the plan usually worked and it made sense. And if they felt like, uh, well, what's your, what's, your, what's your plan? Well, I need to be president of the United States by Thursday. You know, that's not realistic. And they kind of felt like low energy. And that's something you can use in terms of determining grit or quit. Like, what am I, what am I, what am I wanting here? Do mm. I have an outcome? Okay. What's the obstacle? Is it surmountable, not surmountable? What's my plan? Does that plan sound effective? After going through that exercise, do I feel like, uh, you know what? I either need a better plan or maybe I need a better wish. Maybe I need to clarify what I want or maybe I want something else. So walking through an exercise like that, because I think most people tend to kind of ruminate and muse and it's very muddy and they go back and forth as opposed to a clear process. What do I want? What is the outcome I want? What is the obstacle? What is my plan for overcoming that? And you going through that can really make you start to say, this is not realistic. or Hey, I've got a plan here. Why aren't I executing on it? Yeah. Whoop, there it is. I, I was waiting for you the whole time. I'm like, come on. You're like, and You're whoop, like, there. there it is. No. Okay. Rocking back and forth, biting your tongue. When's the oh, author going to so shut up? I actually didn't hear anything you said because I was just waiting for that. Uh, Tasha asked, how can I convince my 13 year old son to start networking? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like the, 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 you know, I, I don't know for what kind of networking, uh, what he needs to be, he needs to be doing, but you know, what's really interesting is when you look through all the research on networking and what makes people feel awkward, what works, what doesn't work, what you basically find is that, you know, your brain doesn't know the difference between friends and contacts. You know, the same things that help you become friends with people are the same people that bond you together as contacts. And the, the more authentic, the more friendship-oriented it is versus transactional, the more it's going to last, the more you're going to like each other, the more authentic it's going to be, you know, because in the end, you know, contacts aren't going to help you move a body at 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, that, that's the difference. It's like people you're really going to rely on. So it's, it's about friendship, you know, and that's what you often find is that people with the best networks they're usually people they're friendly with. That's the people who they spend time with. It's not this artificial thing. Uh, you know, Tasha, I would ask, I would ask you the question because ultimately you can't make anybody do anything right. It's, it's about helping them get what they want. What does your son want? Do you know what he really wants over the next period of his life? And what questions can you ask him that would allow him to self-discover that having the right type of network would actually benefit him? So I would, I would encourage you to go down that path. What are the questions do you guys have as the audience? Because we're going to ask a few more and then we will wrap it up. Uh, Eric, what's one thing that you haven't talked about that you think we really just, we have to share before we wrap it up today? One of the other chapters of the book, I talk about the issue of self-confidence because everybody, you know, one of the big topics is always confidence. And and, it's a, and in general, it's a rather one-sided debate. I don't hear a lot of people running around asking how to be less confident. You don't see a lot of books written on how to yeah. reduce your confidence. But the truth is that you know confidence is a double-edged sword because at one extreme, it leads to hubris, arrogance. You could turn into a, you know, a real jerk. Uh, you know, people who are overconfident and people who are overconfident don't learn as well. The research shows because they think they know everything. So confidence in and of itself does not scale infinitely like more confidence is, you know, more money is better. Uh, but on the flip side, you know, it's like nobody wants to be, 
utterly unconfident, but the benefits of humility are you're able to learn, you get along better with people. So it's actually a tricky thing until you realize that the self-confidence paradigm is actually kind of broken. The, the real issue is now uh, some of the latest research actually aligns with stuff that people learned a couple thousand years ago. Uh, the Buddhist idea of self-compassion has been getting some scientific attention from uh, Kristen Neff at the University of Texas at Austin. And she's found that self-compassion uh, actually provides all the benefits of self-confidence without the negatives. And self-compassion is mm -hmm. basically, as opposed to blowing yourself up to insane proportions and then having your self-esteem crash when you can't live up to these ridiculous expectations, is accepting that you're human, accepting you're going to make mistakes, you know, and speaking to yourself, you know, in your head compassionately. Hey, I'm going to give it my best shot. Some people fear that having a compassionate attitude is going to steal their edge. They're not going to they're not going to be as aggressive. But what those people forget is that it actually reduces the fear. So rather than, oh, I need my my edge in order to get out there and really achieve. Well, when you're achieving, you're doing well. You don't want to lose. So you often end up self-handicapping so that you can keep your perfect title as opposed to self-compassion. Once I know I'm human, I'm not afraid. And when I'm not afraid, I try more things. So there's a balancing effect there. And the other thing is you're not miserable and having a coronary, you know, every day pushing yourself to slay a dragon to maintain your self-esteem. Yeah. It at the essence, what I'm hearing you say is when you're just focusing on confidence, it's almost a scarcity mindset because you have to win um, yeah. versus self-compassion, which is more abundance, like accepting who you are and opening yourself up to what you can do. A absolutely. It's like giving things a shot, going out there and trying and realizing, hey, I, I might fail. That's OK. Like we were talking about earlier, that's how you learn as opposed to having this Superman impenetrable and vulnerable image of yourself which is eventually going to crash. Eventually, you're Three not going to be able to keep up the facade. It, it keeps this, you end up on this roller coaster of emotions. You know, if I slay the dragon today, I'm awesome. Uh, tomorrow, I didn't. I'm, I suck. Awesome. Suck. Awesome. <laughs> no, thank you. Right. Uh, final question comes from Rebecca. Aside from your book, what's a must read? Oh, geez. There's a, there's a lot of a lot of great books uh, out there. Too many. Uh, one uh, one I would definitely recommend that recently just came out is uh, Dan Pink's When uh, is uh, all about the science of timing, basically the best time to, to do anything in your life. And it's exhaustively researched, really useful and hits at so many different areas of life. Uh, everything from when the best time of day to get work done, uh, you know, uh, 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 thinky work versus creative work, the best time of your life to get married. Uh, he covers, you know, all the research and uh, it's it's a really interesting, it's almost like a, re it's a, it's a very readable, very enjoyable reference book. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Eric Barker, thank you so much, folks. If you want to get a copy of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, you can go to Amazon. You can also go to audible.com slash one thing. This will be repurposed and will go out on the One Thing podcast, which you can subscribe to on your podcast player of choice. Um, within 24 hours, we'll send an email out containing a link to this so you can watch it again. It'll ultimately be posted on our website at the one thing.com slash webinars. And if you're interested in taking the next step in terms of having us be your accountability partner in getting results, you can join our membership at the one thing.com slash membership. So Eric, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Eric Barker, author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. What really stands out to me out of this episode is the idea of looking at what you do in your life and looking for four things, for happiness, for achievement, for significance, and for legacy. Think about a time in your life when you just didn't seem fulfilled in what you were doing professionally. Was it because one of those four was missing? Maybe your happiness wasn't there. Maybe you didn't really feel like you were achieving. Maybe you didn't feel like you had the significance or you weren't leaving that legacy. Was the fact that one of those was missing the reason that you chose to move on in your career? When you look at what you're doing today, how are you doing in those four areas? What can you do differently? This is an awesome time for us just to, to pause and reflect on our life. 
We hope that you have gotten value from this. If you would like to join us for our upcoming webinar series, go to the one thing.com slash webinars. And that's with the number one in the URL. Our next guest is going to be Adam Grant, author of Give and Take and co-author of Option B with Sheryl Sandberg, who's the COO of Facebook. We're going to be talking to him at the end of February. And we've got lots of more amazing authors lined up. If this has made an impact in you, please share it with somebody, send them a text, let them know about the podcast and make sure that if you are not already, hit that subscribe button so all future episodes automatically come to your device. Thanks so much for being a fan of The One Thing. We really appreciate you and we look forward to being with you in the next episode.